0: Welcome to our Sunday morning praise and worship service. My name is Ronnie Coston, the associate pastor. Thank you for joining us for a time of celebration of praise and thanksgiving. In just a few moments, Pastor Dave McGee will bring the message for us today. Dogwood Baptist Church exists for the purpose of sharing the love of God to any and all. Our desire is that in our efforts to do this, we can in some way touch your life and help you find the joy of knowing and living in a loving relationship with Jesus. Please feel comfortable in knowing that we're always available to minister to you. It would be our pleasure to talk with you about any decision that God may be leading you to make. Now join us as we worship together and know that as God loves us, we love you, and may God bless you. Father, as we bow here in your presence, Lord, we lift up these requests that have been mentioned and others, Father, that maybe we're not even aware of. But Lord, we're lifting them up to you and we're we're asking, as you have told us in your word, to let our requests be made known. So we're asking for relief, for healing, for um, guidance, strength, Father, whatever it may be. Father, I pray that you'd meet us here this morning. Lord, I pray for the remainder of our service that as we go through this time and look into your word, that, Lord, you would open this up for us, that we might understand you better. And, Father, I pray that as we leave here today, that our spirits will just be drawn closer to you because we were here together with these folks. So, Lord, I, I give you the remainder of this time, and we pray your blessings on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you all be seated? Now, I am packing in a... Big sermon today, okay? Um, So I'm telling you up front, I may go a little over. I know you don't want to hear that. Um, You should have drank more coffee, That's all I got to say. Then you say, well, then I have to go to the bathroom, I know. But um, I got got some things here I want to talk about. Um, Let me just get into this and get going. You know, when I graduated from Dallas Seminary, I graduated like a lot of seminarians. They graduate thinking they have all the answers, And I'm no different. I graduated and I had my little box, my little theological box, and and God fit in that box. I had Him all figured out. I had all the answers for all the problems. I knew who God was. I knew the answers to questions. And, uh, you know, that worked until I got into my first ministry or two. And then people started coming to me and asking me questions that go like this. Pastor, please tell me why God took my child. If God is good... Then is God in control? Because how can God be in control if bad things happen and God's still good? And I, I you know, I dig in Scripture and I try to come up with answers, but I realized very quickly that I didn't have answers for everything that people were asking. And I found myself almost defending God. I found myself in more times than not trying to defend God's integrity and His honor and His holiness and His goodness and his sovereignty um, against questions that people were asking. And I don't know about you, but for me, that became very uncomfortable. And slowly, what I had to do was this. I had to give up my box. I had to say, okay, this is who I think God is. And for years, it's fit. It's been comfortable there. Um, I've been comfortable realizing that this is who God is, and I've got him all figured out. And every time somebody would come with a question that seemed to imply that God's not in that box, He's out here somewhere, I kept saying to God, get back in there. You know, get back in there, because I don't have an answer if this is who you are out here. Unless you fit in my box, I, I, can't, I don't know what to do. And God kept popping out on me, you know? He kept getting, getting out of that stinking thing. And, I, and that was Frustrating until I finally had to come to the realization that God didn't need for me to defend him. God didn't need for me to explain him um, because God is sovereign. And I came to the realization that God is sovereign. And basically what that means is that God is God, the great I am, who can do anything that he wants. And he doesn't have to fit in my box. I don't have to understand him. I don't have to figure him out. And there will be times when I just scratch my head in in disbelief. If the things that happened that I know that God was in and I and I don't have an answer for, but I know that God is still God. And I had to come to that conclusion. And, and I say that to you because I'll guarantee you there are some of you here that are struggling with this. You know, you're asking yourself, how can God be in control if bad things are happening? And how can God be a God of love and and in peace and goodness and all these things when bad things happen? You know, when God, uh, children are, are abused like we just heard about, and, and where's God in this? And, and you tell me God is good, but I don't believe it. And we end up rejecting, now listen to me, we end up in our theology rejecting either the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God. And Here's what it looks like. We say to ourselves, wait a minute. God is good. He's benevolent, loving and, and, and giving. And he's, you know, the great caregiver in the sky type thing. And this is my my box. This is who God is. So when bad things are happening out here and I don't understand it and you tell me or I read in Scripture that God somehow is involved in this and, and that God is sovereign, those two things don't go together. So I've got to reject one or the other And By and large, what we reject is the sovereignty. We basically say that God is love and goodness, and that's who God is because it makes us feel good. We have an answer for for that. We we like that. But the bad things that happen are that Satan's doing. Or that's just evil men. And the thought that God would be involved in something that is awful, that God would somehow be allowing that or even in some cases instigating some things, we just can't. That doesn't compute with us. We can't understand that because I've got God over here. And here's my my point in this is because. The longer you study the Bible and the more honest you are with yourself, you're going to have to come to realize that if I keep God over here in this box and all He is is love, goodness, and and that's all I know of Him, then basically what I've done is I have given over the realm of sovereignty, the all-powerful, the almighty, uh, the great I Am, I've given that to Satan. Satan. Because I basically said everything that happens that I don't like, I ascribe to him. And I'm here to tell you that you've got to come to the conclusion and the, the, the understanding, the recognizing that, that God can be both, and that God is both. And that until you can bring these two together, you're going to always struggle. And I can tell you from experience that when I finally gave in to my understanding of what the Bible said about the sovereignty of God, my faith grew. You see, my faith grew because I saw the great I am for what he is. And I recognized that he can still be God and still be kind, loving and gracious and compassionate and all the things that the Bible portrays him to be. And he doesn't need to fit into my little understanding. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. If you can come to that realization and let let the Bible speak for itself and try to understand that God can't be explained. Let God be God. That there's a great satisfaction in that. There's a great deal of comfort in that. Because I would rather have that understanding of God that he is both of these things than to think that somehow Satan has power and control that I've allowed him to have or given over to him because I can't understand the concept of God. So today what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to talk to you about the goodness and the sovereignty of God and bring those two together, help you to try to understand. I'm going to tell you right now that you're going to hear some things that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. But that's okay, because unless I'm I'm stretched and and have to face things that are in the Bible that make me feel uncomfortable, then how can I ever learn? So all I'm asking you to do today is to listen and to read the scriptures with me. And I want to challenge your box. I want to challenge your little concept of God, your small God. I want to challenge that. And when you leave here today... I want you to leave here without that box. I want you to leave here thinking to yourself, just like the song is, the great I am, that God is sovereign and I can rest in that, and God is good and I can rest in that. And I don't have to be able to explain it all. I just need to believe it. And if you can do that, I really think it's going to help you tremendously. Now, let's get into this, to what I'm talking about. Uh, there's one verse in Genesis as we go to the, come to the end of the study in Genesis. This one verse that I want to go back to that we've looked at. When Joseph and his brothers are together and Jacob their our father dies and the brothers think that Joseph is going to kill them now, they come to him and they're, they're concerned that he's going to kill them. And in verse 20 of chapter 50, Genesis 50:20, we looked at this last time, but I want you to go back to it for a moment. This is what he says to them. He says, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, what he's saying is this, that you guys sold me into slavery. You were going to kill me. And then the caravan happened by and you sold me into slavery and sent me to Egypt. And I've been here for 13 years in bondage or in prison, one or the other. And you meant it to evil. You wanted to harm me. But I understand and I recognize that God had other intentions. God was in it and God intended it for good. Now, if that doesn't make it plain enough, let me go back a little ways to Genesis chapter 45, where in verses 7 and 8, he was talking to the brothers earlier, and here's what he said. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Okay, wait a minute, because you see, this causes conflict in my spirit and maybe yours too. Because basically what you're saying here is that Joseph was sent into slavery as a 17-year-old boy and then into prison for a number of years. And so for 13 years total, he was losing and missing out on his youth. That God basically stole his youth. And he acknowledges here that it wasn't you guys. You were just the instruments. God did this because God had a plan for saving lives, and this is what he did. You see, we want to look at that. We want to say, wait a minute, those evil brothers did that. Satan did that. God wouldn't do something like that. That kind of God, he's not in my box here. But yet, this is what it says it says that God did it, and God had a reason for doing it. And it wasn't Satan, it was the evil brothers that were the instruments. But Joseph acknowledges, you guys didn't do it, he did it. That's sovereignty. You see, that's in control. And we keep wanting to say, wait a minute, I believe Satan was behind that. And I I believe that, that, that the evil brothers were doing it. And that God just took it all and somehow God in his power just worked it all out. You know what? I used to believe that. But if you follow this line of reasoning through, you come to this conclusion. God sure is lucky. Because God takes circumstances that just happen and they just happen at the right time. And he sure is lucky. That Satan and demons and man always seem to be working around here. And God says, oh, ooh, I, I can work in that. I'll, I'll, I'll change that and do something over here and I'll use what they're doing. And, and again, I ask you, if that is the case, then who's in charge? And we've got to think this through. And you've got to come to some realization of just what it's saying. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you three things today, and i want to take you through a lot of Scripture. And all I'm asking is that you put your seatbelts on and hang on with me and listen, okay? And I want to share these three things. And these three things I want you to listen to and I want you to think about, because when I first say them to you, you're going to say, wait a minute, what's he saying? For example, the first thing is this. God will at times use sinful men and sinful means to accomplish His will. Let me repeat it in case you think I've said something else. God will at times use sinful men and sinful means to accomplish His will. Now, you're right away thinking, wait a minute. Are you saying that God sins? No, absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that God cannot sin. He is not able to sin. He is holy and righteous and good. The Bible teaches that. But let me ask you this question. In the law of Moses, the law says, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder, basically, is what it's saying. Does God kill? Does God kill innocent people? You go back into the Old Testament and you look at all the carnage of the Old Testament. You go back and you look at what happened in Jericho. When God brings Joshua up to the land of Jericho, and here's the instructions for you and the Israelites now, is you go into this land. Go into Jericho, march around it, I'll drop the walls for you. You guys go in and you destroy everything that breathes. Women, children, men, animals, livestock, everything. Now I ask you, were there little children in Jericho? Yeah. Infants in Jericho. Yeah. You see, we don't want to think about this. We just put it aside with say, well, that must have been Satan doing that. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And yet God says to you and me, don't murder, and God does. Now how could he do that and still be holy? I'll answer that in a minute. What about stealing? Thou shalt not steal, the Bible tells us. And yet, time and time again, God sends the Jews into the land of Palestine. And he says, this is your land. And I'm taking it from the Ammonites and the Canaanites and all the rest of these people. And I'm going to give you the vineyards that you didn't plant. And I'm going to give you the homes you didn't build. And I'm taking it from them and I'm giving it to you. Now, let me ask you, what is your definition of stealing? But yet the Bible says that God doesn't steal God, or God doesn't sin. Vengeance. Boy, that's a big one. God tells us specifically, thou shalt not seek revenge. Don't get even. Don't retaliate. And then he says, but vengeance is mine. And time after time, God sought vengeance and God got vengeance. And God said, I'm a jealous God and I'm going get, to get even here. Now, why is it okay for God to do it, but yet not for you and me? And how is it that God can do these things and it still not be sin? Because it isn't. And there's really only one answer. Because what you're going to see in Scripture is that there are things that we do that are, that are considered sinful acts but are not sin because God hasn't said, thou shalt not do them yet. Now watch. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. Paul's talking about the law and he says before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Now, what he's saying is this, that from from Adam on, that there has been sinful acts. People have been committing sinful acts, what we now consider sin, know to be sin. But it wasn't thought of or seen as sin because God hadn't said thou shalt not do it yet. So it wasn't charged against them as sin. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, how many possible sins could they have committed? One. No, oh, you're right. The youth on the front rows, one sin. That was it. Because there was only one prohibition. Don't eat of that tree. Now let me ask you this. Could God eat of that tree? If God wanted to eat of that tree, could He have eaten of that tree? Yeah. Why wouldn't it be sin? Because you've got to understand this. We, we think in our minds that there's some law in the universe out there that has all of these conditions, the, the things that are sinful, what is considered to be sin. And that somehow, not only are we bound by it, but God is bound by it. And it's not true. God is not bound by any law outside of Himself. He is sovereign, in control. God can take lives and it's not sin. God can take property and give it to His people. It is not sin. God can get revenge it's not sin. God can do whatever He wants. And it's not sin because He's God. And He doesn't have to answer to you or me. And that bothers us. Because I want Him in the box. I want to be able to explain Him. And I can't, you see. When I really understand that God does what God wants. And I can't always explain it and doesn't always make sense, but I have to accept it and believe it because this is what the Scripture teaches. Now, let me show you from Scripture some of the passages that we read oftentimes and we just want to jump over. We want to ignore them, but you can't ignore them, okay? Let me show them to you. Let's just begin with this one with Joseph. Joseph is, is saying to these, to these men, listen, you are the ones, the instruments, your jealousy and anger and hatred to me is what really, you know, you sold me into slavery, but God was behind it. You know, God is the one that did this. Now, you've got to follow this through because if this is true, what Joseph is saying, that you didn't do it, God did it, then what that means is this, that God took the anger and the jealousy and the hatred of these brothers, and somehow God took that and these men and placed into their hearts, their minds, the idea to sell him into slavery to get him into Egypt. God somehow did that. I cannot explain it. But if you don't acknowledge that, then how do you explain the statement that Joseph made? You didn't do it. God did it. How else could God have done it? So you find God using sinful men to accomplish a goal. Well, it gets, it gets even worse. Let me Worse in the sense we can't explain it. Samson. We all know the story of Samson. God's champion. There's a, an account in the book of Judges where Samson sees a beautiful woman, a Philistine woman. We know, you know, it's, it's trouble. We know the story. But he says to his father, I want to marry this woman. I want you to go down to where she lives in Timnon. I want you to to make arrangements with her parents and get her for me. And his, mom and his mom and dad just have a fit. They say, how can you marry this pagan woman when God has told us as Jews... Not to marry these people. Why can't we go and get you a wife from our people like God told us to do? And then you come to Judges chapter 14, verse 4, and it picks up the story. And there's parentheses here and it says his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Here we got a problem. You may not see it, but there's a problem here. God just jumped out of my box. Because what it's saying is this, that there is a a sinful thing that God has commanded that they are not to do. They're not to intermarry. And now it seems from what I can read here that this was from God that Samson wanted Delilah and God was in this because God moved them to marry because God wanted to incite the Philistines and the story goes on you can go read it for yourself but what does this verse mean it means that a sovereign God used sinful means and sinful people to accomplish his will and yet he's unstained by it he's without sin Job more there's one we all know the story of Job And we know that when Job, the the book of Job opens up, the account is that Job, I'm sorry, that Satan is in heaven talking to God. Now, Satan has access to heaven. We're not going to spend time going into that, but the Bible says he accuses the the brethren every day before God. So he has access. There again, I don't understand it, but it's true. So he comes into the presence of God one day and God says to Satan, where have you been? He says, I've been roaming around earth. Now, basically what he's saying is this. I've been down there wreaking havoc and I'm here to tell you what I've done. You know, basically those people you think love you, they don't love you, blah, blah, blah. And then you get down to Job chapter one, verse eight, and it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Okay, we know the story of Job. We know what happens to Job. And Satan says basically to God, yeah, I would like to get my hands on him, but you've got him protected. Now, that tells you something. God, the sovereign God, is protecting his chosen one from Satan. Please don't give Satan more power than he deserves. And so God has Job protected, and then Satan says this, if you will take that away and let me get at him, I will do whatever you want me to do. In verse 12, in chapter 1, verse 12, here's what it says. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your power. I give you the power to do this, God says. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. And it says, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we know the story. He took everything the man had, including his family, children, property, health, everything. Within the parameters that God set, you cannot take his life. And the story goes on that I'm not going to go into it. There's a reason why he did it. And it takes the whole book of Job to figure it out. But the point is this. God used Satan to accomplish his will. God is sovereign. He, he takes and he uses satanic forces. He uses evil people. It doesn't matter. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's God. I cannot always explain this, folks, and I'm going to, you know, but you have to acknowledge it. You can't ignore this. It is all through the Bible. Look at this one. King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. We know King Nebuchadnezzar swept in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and destroyed the city. He laid siege to Jerusalem. He not only destroyed Jerusalem, but he destroyed all the countries around it. The Ammonites, the Jebusites, everybody that was left, the, the Philistines, everybody. He, he destroyed it all. Do you know the Bible says that there are prophecies against Jerusalem telling them that it's going to happen in a prophetic form? The prophets tell us that when he laid siege to Jerusalem, I think it was several years, it could have been longer, I don't remember. That it would be so bad in the city of Jerusalem, they would be so hungry that there would be mothers who ate their children? That's how bad this was? Now watch. Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 6. Now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him what is God saying? I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar against Israel, and I'm going to bring him against all the surrounding countries. He's my servant. I'm going to do it. Nobody else. Now, we look at that and we say Nebuchadnezzar was the evil man that did it. Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument God used. But a sovereign God was in it. A sovereign God was behind it. He's the one that brought this about. He prophesied about it before it ever happened. Time going on, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and Babylon becomes more wicked. And that's one thing I want you to see, he's using a wicked pagan king. And then God brings another king to take care of Babylon. And another empire rises, the empire of the Persians and the Medes. Now watch this, in Isaiah 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus... Cyrus was king of Persia, whose right hand, and watch this, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor and open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, look, I'm going to bring Cyrus from Persia into Babylon now to destroy Babylon. God did it. God said, this is my servant. I'm going to take him by the right hand. He's a pagan, nasty, filthy king. I'm going to guide him into Babylon and destroy Babylon with him. How could you do that, God? Because I'm God. And I don't have to answer. Scripture talks about my ways, my thoughts are above yours. How true that is. How true that is. Listen to how Jeremiah describes it. Jeremiah fifty-one, one. he says, this is what the Lord says. See, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon and the people of Lebkammai. I'm going to stir up his spirit. I'm going to take Cyrus. I'm going to stir up his spirit and I'm going to bring him into Babylon hot and heavy. And he's going to destroy Babylon. I'm doing it. God's saying it out loud. I'm doing it. And we want to pass over these verses, you see. We want to just ignore these because our little box says God is good. And if God is good, he can't be sovereign. And I'm here to tell you he's both. And you've got to recognize this. Now, here's the unique thing about this prophecy. It's one of the great prophecies in the Bible. And here's the reason why. And that is this, that when Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus... It was 160 years before it would ever happen. Cyrus wasn't even born. And yet God calls him by name. Before he's ever born, he says, My servant Cyrus will do it. Tell me he's not sovereign? Are you going to throw sovereignty out the door? Because you can't understand these passages? Because God doesn't fit in your box? Here's one last scripture on this particular point. Listen. Listen. This is in the New Testament. Peter is praying and he's praying concerning the crucifixion of Christ that has already taken place. And he's in his prayer acknowledging that, you know, King Herod and Pontius Pilate are the ones that, that brought him to justice and crucified him. And here's what he says in Acts chapter four, verse twenty eight. He says they talking about Herod and Pilate, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, what is that saying? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that not saying that before it ever happened, God decided, and these are the servants, these pagan men that God used to accomplish what He wanted, the crucifixion of Christ? And we keep wanting to say everything is an accident that's bad. God didn't do it. God wouldn't do that. And you've got to let God out of His box. You've got Him in and let Him begin to see just what it means to, when, when He told Moses, I'm the great I Am. Well, What does that mean? Well, I am whatever I want to be. Whatever I choose to be. And I will not be defined by you. Now see, this bothers people makes us uncomfortable. But for me, it's just the opposite. Because I'd rather have the great I am in charge of my life than to think that Satan has power that God somehow doesn't control. That somehow a president of our country could take us down the path that somehow God didn't want us to go down and didn't have anything to do with. And we worry about that. And and when we understand the sovereignty of God, then why do we worry? Because if God is sovereign, then God's got it. Here's the second point that I want to share with you, and I'm going to move fast for you. God will, at times, use pain and suffering to accomplish His will. God will, at times, use pain and suffering to accomplish His will. Now, I'm moving away from the fact that He uses evil people to accomplish His will, and even Satan, to the fact that sometimes God, in our lives as believers, His people, uses pain and suffering. And see, this is really what it comes down to. This is where we struggle. Because we can't understand this. We can't get our minds around this one. But yet, Joseph, you know, Joseph lost his entire youth. And he said, God did it. The pain and the suffering of this man, this young man, he is acknowledging. Now look at these passages, okay? King Saul, first king in Israel wasn't God's choice, it was the people's choice, but he went along and let them have what they wanted. He turned out to be a sorry king. Within every king of Israel, God put his spirit, that as long as they had his spirit, they were on the throne. When he took his spirit away, that means he took the throne away. But all the kings had his spirit on them in order to empower them. And look at what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. Here's what it says. Now the Spirit, capital S, so it's the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit of God, of the Lord, had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. If you're reading that, baby, you better, you, you better be puckering up thinking, what in the world is this talking about? Because I'm telling you right now, you, you don't pass over verses like this. It's not talking about the Spirit leaving him and him losing salvation. That's not the way it worked in the Old Testament. Spirit didn't dwell anybody, but it came on people to empower them. It empowered the kings. When God took His Spirit, He said, you're no longer going to be king. It took years before He finally got David up there, but nonetheless. But then it says that He sent him an evil spirit to torment him. Now, there's one of two ways of looking at this. This is either in a, a demonic entity that God commands to go do this, which is perfectly within the realm of reality when it comes to what God does. Or it could be this. It could be that this is a spirit of depression that came over Paul, over Saul. Here's the reason we say that. Down in verse 23, here's what it says. Whenever the spirit of, from God came on Saul... David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, the idea behind it is this. It's something to do with the playing of the music that soothed him. So it might have been depression. That's what one point of view is. Now, my thing is this. I don't have the answer. I don't know which is which. And it doesn't really matter. The point is, whatever it was, was tormenting Saul. And God did it we struggle with that. We struggle with that. And we ask ourselves, why would God do that to Saul? Well, there were reasons. There were reasons in Saul's life that God was punishing Saul. But there was also this reason. He needed to get David into the palace. And when Saul suffered through this, they sought somebody that could play the musical instrument and soothe him. So they went and got David. God is orchestrating the events in what, and what He is doing is causing pain and suffering in the life of somebody to accomplish what He wants. That sounds terrible just to say. But it's true. Here's one. When Israel was wandering in the desert for 40 years, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, here's what God says. Or Moses is basically saying, talking about God. He says, He humbled you, causing you to be hungry, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now here's what Moses is saying. He said, I'm reminding you that when you were wandering around for these 40 years, All you got to eat was manna. You know what manna was? Basically just sustenance. That's all. For 40 years, they had nothing that had flavor to it. Can you imagine? Could you eat oatmeal for 40 years and that's all? It was just enough to keep them alive and they were kept alive. But there was nothing good about it in the sense that it was was something they wanted. And God said, here's the reason I did it. I let you be hungry and I fed you with manna because I wanted you to learn something. And before you go into this land that I've promised you, I want you to understand that man doesn't live. The most important thing in life is not what you have or how comfortable you are or how happy you are or how everything's going well for you. Here's the most important thing in life. That you learn to accept what I decree for you. And God says, for 40 years, I have made the decision that you'll eat manna. Now, I want to know, will you be satisfied with that? You've got to learn. To be subject to me. I'm sovereign. And they learned. It took them those 40 years to be ready now to go into the land. He's using unpleasant circumstances, hunger, suffering, in order to teach them something. Now watch this one. This was in the New Testament. And actually, it's Jesus, and he quotes this particular passage. Jesus is sent out into the desert Um, The wilderness after he's baptized and for 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and it says that when he was at his weakest point after 40 days, Satan came to him and tested him and he starts hitting him up with things like, look, if you say you're God, then act like God, turn these stones into bread and feed yourself. Why are you doing this? And what is Satan doing? Satan is trying to get Jesus to do something contrary to what he's been told to do. Here's his response in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what did he mean by that? He's quoting Moses' this statement in Deuteronomy. He's saying this, look. God sent me out here. My Father sent me out here for the purpose of waiting until I'm the weakest point so that you could come and test me. And I could turn those stones to bread, but that's not the point because that's not the most important thing in life. The most important thing in life is that I do what my Father has told me and He's told me to suffer. He's told me to go hungry for 40 days and 40 nights. A month and a half almost, folks. Could you go without food for a month and a half? He is so weak physically, that he is near physical death probably because of of the weakness. And Satan comes at that point and says, You fool, why don't you turn this to bread and be done with this? Why is it so important? It's important because this is what God said for me to do. Now, folks, if you doubt that God did it, let's go back to verse 1. Matthew 4, 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, capital S, Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness and said, this is where you're to be. For what purpose? So that Satan can tempt you. God had a plan. God had a plan and God sent his son into the wilderness to suffer that. And folks, let me tell you something. He does the same thing in our lives at times. You and I wonder, why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? I can't tell you specifically why you're suffering. I can't tell you why you're going through this terrible time. But I can tell you that Satan's not in charge of it. Some evil man's not in charge of it. Your God is in charge of it. And he may have used instruments, but God is sovereign and God's behind it. And I can tell you this from what I see in Scripture, that the various reasons, and there are various reasons why God might do something like that, are such as these. To discipline you, to guide you, to humble you, to teach you, to use you, to mature you. There are all kinds of reasons why God would do something like that. And see, here again, God's over here in my box and, and, and God only does good things to me and, and good things for me. God wouldn't do that. And God keeps trying to kick His way out of that box that you've got Him in and say, will you please take a look at me and recognize that I am God. Third and final thing. Here it is. No matter what He does, God is still good all the time. No matter what he does. And folks, this is where I'm, t- I'm telling you the balance lies. God can be good and gracious and loving, which he is, and still be sovereign and in control, which he is. And you've got to accept these both, even though in your mind they seem to p- go against each other. Or well, look at these scriptures, because the same scriptures that teach that God is sovereign are the same scriptures that teach that he is good. Now watch only a few more minutes. And I'll let you out here. OK. Let's take Joseph, for example. Go back to the story. Joseph said to the brothers, what you did, you intended to harm me. God intended it for good. In other words, it was horrible for 13 years, but God's intentions, what God had planned, was something good. And I acknowledge that, he says. I recognize that. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, listen to what he says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a a future. What is God saying? This is my intentions for you. What I desire, my plan. I want something good for you. To get you ready for the future. To do good to you. I'm not here to harm you. That's not who I am. Do you suffer sometimes? Yes, because God is working. Can we explain it? No, not really. But I don't throw out the sovereignty of God because it happens. I acknowledge that God is God. Listen to what David says in the Psalms. Psalms 119 verse 68. He says, You are good. And what you do is good. Teach me your decrees, Lord. You're good, Lord, and everything you do is good. Now, that seems bland enough, but go down to the next couple of verses and you'll see what he says in verse 75 and 76. David says, I know, Lord, that your laws are righteous
1: and that in
0: faithfulness you have afflicted me. What? Lord, I know that in your faithfulness to me, because you love me, you have afflicted me. Let me tell you something. David's had some serious afflictions. He really did. God beat him up at times, so to speak. But he says, I know that you're faithful to me. Verse uh, 76 says, may your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Lord, I know you love me. I know you're committed to me. I know you're faithful to me. I know you've made promises to me. So when you afflict me for whatever reason, I accept it and I acknowledge that you are God. And let me tell you something, folks. That's just the opposite from what so many of us do. We get mad at God. How dare you? How dare you let this happen? I have done this for you and this for you. See, that was really Job's problem. If you read the book, you'll find that out. But we do that. And we're saying basically to God, you're supposed to act like this. I obey you and do good things and you do good things for me. That's the deal we got. And God says, I'm going to do something different outside the box and I'm going to change you in ways you can't imagine. So I'm going to do it this way. How dare you? And I'm going to tell you something. You're going to struggle. You're going to struggle with the hard times in life and the things that come your way and the things that you can't explain if, until you accept the fact that God is God and that you're content with that. One last verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. How we all know this one. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose in everything, good or bad. I know that God's working in it. I know that Satan can't touch me unless God says it's okay. I know that there's no man that can devise something to hurt me unless God says it's okay. And I'm going to tell you something. If you let God out of that box you got Him in, and let Him grow into the God that He is in your mind and in your heart, you'll do that. I can guarantee you, your faith is going to grow. Your sense of awe and majesty of God is going to grow. And no matter what happens in life, you'll be able to face it with certainty because you know who holds the future. And you can basically say, God, it's okay. I don't understand, but I believe and I accept you. Folks, let God out of that box. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And as you sit here today, you know, you've got this image of God. You've got Him there, right in His little box. And you've got Him all figured out. And God acts this way. And when something happens that's contrary to that, you get all bent out of shape and your faith is shaken. Folks, let Him out. Just take the box and throw it away and say, God, You are the great I Am. You are God. I accept that. And I acknowledge that you are good. In all your ways, you are good. And I believe that. So, Lord, I don't accuse you of anything. I don't charge you with sin. I don't charge you with being unfair. I don't charge you with not loving me. Because, Lord, the Scripture says differently. And, Lord, I don't have to understand you. I don't have to understand you to love you. Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, may each one of us see you for who you are. The great I am, the God of the universe, the one who's in charge, you are sovereign in all your ways. And Father, we don't have to explain you. We don't have to. But we accept you. Lord, we know that you love us because you told us that. You've shown us that. So, Father, when you choose to use means and people in ways we can't explain or don't understand, then, Father, we trust you because we know who you are. And you are a God that is good. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.